0: It's not just you. It's not your voice. You are literally betraying an entire community. If you do not use your constitutional right to vote this person out of
1: office. For fuck's sake, a theater podcast, aka 4FS Podcast, Episode 5, Gen XYZ. All right, here we go. Hello, 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 everyone! Welcome back. This is for fuck's sake a theater podcast, otherwise known as Four FS Podcast. Make sure that you're liking, subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Get into it, everyone. We are here. It is August. This is episode five. Episode five. This is going to be a very special month, and we'll get to that in a second. If you're wondering who the fuck I am, my name is Aaron Salazar. I'm an award-winning theater director and producer in New York City, but more on that later. Or Just go back and listen to some other episodes. But I am more than thrilled to say that we have not one, but two powerhouse young people with us for the month of August as the guest host, Young people. (laughs) Young people are here on the podcast, young people. So let's talk about it. We've got here today with us, Danny, Marin, and Cheech Manohar. Let's give it up for them, everyone. Yes. All right, let me give you a little background. Let me give you a little background on these young people. These young people. Danny Maron is a New York City-based artist. He is an award-winning producer. You might know some of his work. He's best known for J. Armstrong Johnson's annual Halloween extravaganza, I Put a Spell on You, The Return of the Sanderson Sisters. And Danny, where I actually got to know him, was during his work producing Two-Hander, starring Sherry Renee Scott and Norbert Leo Butz at 54 Below. That was off the fucking Hook. He is a multiple Broadway World Cabaret Award nominee, including Best Solo Show and Best Show. And as an actor, he was most recently on HBO's Mrs. Fletcher. And you might have seen him on this little show called The Real Housewives of New York, but more on that later. Next up, double-handing this with me this month, is Cheech Manohar. He is a Syracuse drama alum. Uh, Most recently, you might know him from this show. It's on Broadway. Some woman named Tina Fey had something to do with it. It's called Mean Girls. He's playing Kevin in Mean Girls right now. And you also might know him as Sanjay, also in HBO as Mrs. Fletcher. He also brought Mean Girls to the Broadway, playing Kevin at the National Theater in D.C. He's also been seen in Mary Poppins regionally and New Kid as Nick at Syracuse Stage. And Cheech is also trained as a Bollywood dancer and teaches Bollywood fusion workshops. Everyone, let's give it up for Cheech and Danny one more time. Guys, I'm so excited that you're here. Yeah. I, I can't. Even, I can't even deal with it. All right, so let's. We're gonna do our thing that we do on this show for the very first episode, so you guys can get to know them. Um, I, I hope that some of your fans are here because our demographic for the last show was probably somewhere between forty and death, as we would say in Maine. Um, ah. But now you're here, young people. Welcome. I'm gonna tell you right off the bat. Probably grab a snack and get ready. You'll see what we mean. So we're gonna start off with what we call the elevator pitch. This is basically where we give two minutes. Ish, it's not like sixteen bars, and you gentlemen can fill us in on whatever the heck you want to about your bio. All right, so why don't we start off with Danny? How does that sound, Danny? It sounds
2: great. You know what this feels like? This
3: already feels like um, the finale of Drag Race when they have to like tell RuPaul why they should win. Like that's what this feels like.
1: One hundred percent. And there is a tic tac that I will. Air express mail to you uh, to have as okay. as a meal. um I know it's just. Uh, oh my god, it's so gratifying. The tic tac. Do they still do the tic tac? It's hard to say. Okay, so ladies and gentlemen, I present to you the elevator pitch for Danny Marin.
3: Yeah, I'm Danny Marin. I am 28 years old. I grew up in Southern California, born and raised. I now live in Hell's Kitchen in New York City. Uh, I moved here in 2012 to pursue musical theater, as most people, and then realized maybe not for me. I don't know, uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I realized that I love to write and I like to produce and I like to write and produce my own work. Um, I did. I, I realized that uh, being uh, gay was not just a, a fun party trick, so uh, I, <laughs> I utilized that in my comedy and and really wrote about that. Um, I'm a puppy dad. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm queer. I'm uh, Latinx. Uh, Latinx. Uh, I'm a unicorn. I'm a Capricorn. All of the above. <laughs> I love tacos. Taco Tuesdays, my life. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Great. And we have a month. To unpack all that shit. To learn. Danny, Marin, and perfect. All right. We're going to move this over to you, Mr. Cheech, and uh, take it away.
0: Hi there. My name is Cheech Manohar. I was uh, born not in this country, but also not the country you're thinking of. I was born in Wollongong, Australia, and then moved here to uh, the United States at the age of six and was promptly put in English as a second language classes, although English was my first language. Um, and I was So I was raised in Pittsburgh. I went to school at Syracuse as a musical theater major, which is a predominantly white institution. I am brown. I am queer. I am very lanky now, but I used to be very overweight, so there's a lot of inherent childhood trauma that can be unpacked there. That'll probably be fun. Um, I love to bake. I am a pretty avid baker. What else? Oh, I write. That's, like, a real thing that I do. That was probably something that I should have added at the beginning of the, like, serious portion of this. Yeah, I write. Um, I actually just recently, three days ago, finished the uh, first working draft of my very first feature-length screenplay. So... We'll talk about that, maybe, too. Danny and I met on Mrs. Fletcher, so or actually before Mrs. Fletcher, so I'm very excited to do this with Danny. And what else is there? I dance, I sing loudly and badly in the shower, and I sing loudly and less badly in real life, hopefully.
1: Is that it? We're good? That- That's great. All right, everyone. I should
0: should
3: have had you write mine, honestly. That was so good.
1: (laughs) Oh, I mean, you guys, please. Uh, And that's the thing. So everyone, and Kate, I bet there's a crew of you listening for the first time. So the way that this works here is the format that we do at For Fuck's Sake Theater Podcast is we get our guest hosts, in this case, for a month. Did you hear what we just said? A month of episodes. So that's four episodes, even though there were five Saturdays in August. But let's be real, time is precious. So you've got four episodes to unpack, all that we can unpack. And there's some serious shit to unpack there with you, Cheech, in terms of... Oh, yeah. I'm all about that. Let's go into the latest noise happening right now. Well, first of all, so Cheech is in Michigan right now, living his best life with his boyfriend and his family, if I'm okay, if it's okay okay for me to say that. And Danny and I are in Manhattan, where... On top of everything else that's happening, we are dealing with uh, Hurricane Isaiah, who is Plowing through the city as we speak. I mean, I thought it was going to be fine. And Danny's texting me earlier. You know, the lights are flickering. My mom's like, "Do you have matches from California?" Um, you know, Latin moms. She's like, "I'm sending stuff to Target for you." I'm like, "Wait, what's going on?" I don't even know there's a hurricane. That's that's what's happening here. So if you hear some stuff in the background, that might be a hurricane. All right, Isaiah is such
0: a sexy name for a hurricane, though. I feel like, yeah, I'm like Isaiah. All right, yeah, let's go,
3: let's go, hurricane Isaiah. Well, I think Sounds it, like every man that I've ever been introduced to, like on a blind date, is like an Isaiah. Really? Really? Weirdly? Yeah. Like, strange names.
1: That's so specific, because I've always found that every... Uh, my whole family, for being Mexican, we all have Old Testament last names. Me, I mean, me <laughs> and my brother. So I'm Aaron Jacob. My brother's Noah. I remember when they were going to name Noah... I said, you can name him anything but Isaac, because every Isaac I've ever met is kind of an asshole. Maybe that I've changed my opinion on that, but every Isaac up to that point uh, was an asshole. And that was probably because there was an Isaac that I dated. I don't know if dated, but he was like self-hating because he was young. Um, and he was obsessed with plastic surgery, even though he never got it. Well, that's another episode. Okay, let's <laughs> let's let's talk about some, some nonsense that's happening right now. So something that I find to be very interesting that I think we all wanted to touch base on is this... threat, and it might have been alleviated by the time this goes live on Saturday, of the TikTok shutdown. Let's unpack this a little bit. First of all, a pandemic. Mm, No stimulus package agreed on. Fascism. And yet, somehow, DC's like, you know what we're going to prioritize? Fuck TikTok. So much to the point that after they presented that Microsoft was going to buy a portion of it so we could run here in the States, the 45 wanted to think about enacting the International Emergency Economic Powers Act that bars certain apps from being sold in the U.S. So basically saying we're, we're not going to allow Microsoft to do that because clearly with everything brewing <laughs> right now in the world, TikTok is the enemy. Now, my thought on this is I'm new to TikTok but I have these two young people here today. And so I'm curious what your point of view is on this, because I have found it to be really fucking incredible, to be honest with you. Like, I don't know if I can crack the code of it, but I'm utterly fascinated. I'm fascinated with the algorithms. I'm fascinated with the little wormholes I go down. I'm fascinated how sometimes I end up watching just like really beautiful people making bruschetta. Um, And then I'll be like deep in a conspiracy. But- to me, there seems to be a lack of priority happening there. Much like Jada Essence Hall, who I've referenced on this show before, look over there. Okay. To me, that's what it feels like is what's happening right now. But I'm I'd be curious to hear your point of view on that, gentlemen, who would ever like to start. So
3: first and foremost, I want to say that I am really bad at social media. Like, I don't really truly understand TikTok yet. It's very confusing. I feel so old, like to the point where I still don't even really understand Twitter. So TikTok is like not my thing. (laughs) But um, what I think about TikTok and what is happening with this whole Trump thing is that I think Gen Zers are really fucking smart and so great and and I don't think we give them enough credit I, I they're so smart and we just kind of throw them away and and treat them like they you know they grew up with their computer screens and so they don't know anything and Chichi I don't know what you feel about this cuz I know you're on the cusp of being a Gen Zer um but you know as the world is kind of ending I've never really looked forward to more people stepping into their own adulthood and and being more political
2: Yeah. Uh,
0: I am, I'm 24 right now. So I'm kind of the oldest you can get and still qualify as Gen Z. So sometimes it feels a little bit like I, like I'm that part of Gen Z that gets to like, choose your own adventure as to which generation you fall into. Um, and so there, there are certain things that I, I fall very like staunchly into the millennial standpoint of one of them at the 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 beginning of TikTok's rise to fame was like, well, back in my day, this was called Vine. Like, I was very Mm -hmm, much in mm -hmm. that camp. Um, And it has taken me a while to to get to the place where I've I've realized the the power behind TikTok and the kind of inherent difference that exists on that social media platform. Um, I think social media got to a place where it got... uh, overly curated like everyone like the the like facetune became a big thing everyone started altering images to go on instagram photo editing became huge video editing became huge and then there became this shift i would say probably about it's pretty recent i'd say probably about a year ago where this need for non-curated material really came to, to be this, like, need for something that felt a little bit less put together. And when you think about um, the information that you want when it comes to protests, when it comes to getting informed uh, about political activity, when it comes to, you know, it, you can call them conspiracy theories, but sometimes, like, it, it, the whole firework and police uh debacle like when it comes to those mm-hmm. things sometimes there can be uh again that sense of like over curation when it comes to these uh i'd say more polished social media platforms like instagram and so uh tiktok feels like the necessary channel to disseminate that kind of information and when you have an entire generation that has a monopoly over that social media platform, um, it, it becomes kind of this magical tool to get real unadulterated information and how cool and how powerful is that?
1: I 100% agree. And I found what was interesting is that I got into it because of shelter in place. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, was like, uh, somewhere between despair and carbohydrates i was like okay fine so i you know i start opened my account and i was like what what is this and you know when you first join tiktok it is a a fairly benign silly thing that first starts coming at you because you you haven't established yourself so you're seeing like all the dances and it's like all the trends right And then as I kept going through it, especially during shelter in place, what I was very taken aback by as a director observing was seeing the collective humor that people were using to cope with a very, very serious situation. And I found that to be actually quite moving, dare I say, that everyone was trying to default to laughing about it because what the fuck else are we going to do? People making fun of moving in with their parents, people making fun of the people they're, they're with, blah, blah, blah. And then as it progressed, and I then did my first thing where I was just being an idiot, I'm I'm like, I have like all of six followers, but that's not the point. I'm not on there for that. But then I realized I engaged with it as someone who uses social media for promotion as a producer. And I realized, oh, I could see the how this is really addictive. Because it's fun to create this little blurb of information or product or silliness Mm -hmm. and now what I find to be so fascinating is I actually learn a lot of shit off of there and maybe that's not the right thing to say but first of all I'm obsessed with conspiracy theories obsessed I grew up with (laughs) them my my family just believed in them like it's just the way it is and I and for everyone that's sort of bull like insane there is a kernel of truth there that I'm fascinated with and in particular during all of this time I think even Instagram has followed suit because like you said Instagram became a lot less curated During Mm -hmm. the pandemic. Now, there's a problem with that, too, that I'm sure that you guys probably see as well, because you also, like, don't want to show people everything. Not everything is for public consumption. Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, there is definitely there are definitely public thoughts and private thoughts. There are definitely certain. uh,
1: Overshare. There's
0: definitely certain pieces (laughs) of content that could stand to be a little bit more thought out before they enter the limitless hemisphere that is the internet.
1: Well, and I think in particular right now, with everything happening in terms of, I call it the awakening, hopefully, right? Mm-hmm. Hopefully that's what this is. In terms of let's, let's go back around to our industry, because this is, you know, the whole point is seeing it through our eyes and how it affects us as artists. It's an interesting time because social media is also being used to promote the fact that I think a lot of non-white artists are sort of waking up from decolonizing our minds, weirdly, but in a very quick way. And all of a sudden, there's sort of a lack of fear. I mean, hello, for fuck's sake. I had thought about it. And then when, all, every, when everything started happening, I was like, fuck everyone. Fuck, who, who am I afraid of? Am I afraid of a white audience not liking my show? And I realized that's what I actually what I was afraid of. And that's when I thought, let me just be authentic. And what I'm really moved by is the authenticity right now, in particular, of the non-white artists out there in every medium, just letting people have it and being funny. But what are your thoughts on that?
3: Well, the great thing about social media is that you don't really have to be shy about expressing your feelings and your thoughts. But for me, like, I'm definitely not afraid of going there, but I try to do it in a more curated way and try to be as open as possible. I mean, for God's sake, my butt is all over my social media. Like, I don't really care. But what I really like seeing on social media is people are advocating more for mental health awareness and supporting one another. And it's become way less stigmatized. And coming from, you know, Latinx community, I wish I would have had this earlier in my life because it is such a stigma. And, you know, I would have gone to therapy much sooner had I known that it wasn't a weird thing and seeing that my friends were also going to therapy and also seeking help. I think it's so important. But I think as far as like posting culture goes, posting without doing your research is a really terrifying, scary thing because so many people are just sharing clickbait things without facts and whether knowing whether knowing whether it's right or wrong. And I think that that's creating a big part of our problem i think
0: this is also like speaking a little bit on the the humorous side of it all Mm -hmm. this is the first generation i think to be raised by parents that grew up with like the heyday of comedic television Mm. like which i think like started a little bit with friends the kind of like boom of the sitcom and then uh was followed with the Thirty Rock, the Parks and Rec, the uh, the the NBC like groundbreaking kind of workplace comedies that pushed this this kind of sarcastic point of view to comedy. This this mm-hmm. idea that you could be kind of mean and also <laughs> funny, and yes. kind of truthful and also yeah. funny. This this is the first generation to to be surrounded by that being a normal way to to dispel humor and not only that to dispel information and that kind of content works so well on TikTok and also on Instagram I mean I I've fallen down rabbit holes on Instagram that are just TikTok videos that have been reposted yes um and uh, when it comes to uh those kinds of like the, the the more serious topics like talking about mental health and the, the the stigma that surrounds, you know, just thinking. It becomes so easy to use that humor to talk about something real because they've been raised on, let's use humor to talk about other things. Let's, like, be a little bit more truthful and a little bit more biting and we're all going to be okay like at the end of at the end of this joke, I think that's kind of like a really fascinating thing to think about when it comes to when it comes to Gen Z. It's they're they're shocked by a lot less.
2: Um, yes.
1: I, it's interesting to see people my age talk about things like, Hi. I'm 40-something, I have ADHD, here's how I deal with that shit, and I don't take a Class A Ritalin, which there's nothing wrong with that either, but they're like, I chose not to live a life on a narcotic. Because mental illness, they used to kind of just throw pills at you. Do you know what I mean? So I've watched people really suffer from basically being over-brain-candied. And it's interesting now to see the stigma of those things being taken out from all generations. To piggyback on what both of you are saying, it's true. I think that that's why this feels like a threat to our current situation in-house because there is so much information being spewed and there are people talking about some real shit. And I've noticed this is brilliant when they're like baking or like making a grilled cheese. But you realize the reason they're doing that is so that the algorithm thinks that this is just a thought Mm -hmm. and it's not really about information so i think what people don't like is that there is it's almost like the fucking hunger games it's that people are actually communicating and then what the k-pop fans did yo genius genius, genius. holy shit if only the theater community could pull their shit together and bring people to the a 30-person seated fucking cabaret with the same gusto but we'll <laughs> we'll actually you know what let's talk about that shit in another episode now that i think about it That one That
3: one. That
1: one was like a personal attack on (laughs) me. Listen, Queen. I do immersive theater, and we only ever have sixty people at most. So, and I always say it. I'm like, I knew I was becoming successful with my work when strangers came to my shit, and I'm like, great. Okay, tangent. We'll we'll talk about that on another episode, though. That's a that's a good topic. But I think that that's where they realize this feels like a threat, and this this motherfucker is so threatened by anything that is not going to continue to reelect. I, I think that that's where the fear comes from. And I think, I don't know how you guys feel, but I, I think the verdict is out in terms of what's going to happen in November. But I do think that they are concerned.
3: Yeah, I think the biggest scare for this administration is the unity amongst a huge amount of different communities and demographics. It's kind of similar to Broadway. Um, I think, you know, when the Broadway community started to come forward about racism at the core, you know, more people were coming together and saying, we've had enough. And a lot of people came forward and a lot of people came forward to support. And I just think that there's so much more unity when it comes to call-in culture as opposed to call-out culture or cancel culture right now within the Broadway community. And I think that it it turns into us all learning about how to do better for one another. And the more that the people come together and come forward, the more that we're actually seeing the real numbers against this administration saying, you know, we've had enough.
1: Well, exactly. And then you look at some of these hashtags, the political hashtags, and it's like 2 billion. That's terrifying to somebody.
0: Yeah. And I think that like going back to the 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 feeling of it feeling like a threat to public information, I mean, silencing media is like not a new government tactic
2: Mm-mm. by
0: any way, shape, or form. I mean, as soon as we created the free media, we created the idea that a free media could be threatening and that a free media could be threatened. Mm and on on the flip side of that, like the idea that young people should not be listened to for what they're saying is also not a new idea. It seems like with every generation and the the progression of technology, the progression of thinking, the idea that like, oh, I, I can't listen to you because you're younger than me, so you don't know what you're talking about yet, but you will know when you're my age like that thought process is not a new thought process that's been around a while. And and I think that is what Gen Z has the least patience for in, in the best way possible. Mm-hmm. The idea that, well, I can be three decades younger than you and also be more woke about this thing than you. And those two things can live in tandem. And I understand that and I'm not going to be silenced is is kind of a really wonderful thing to see. And it's so precious and necessary. And the threat of taking that away kind of puts those two threats of silencing young people and silencing a free media in one action. You know, by taking TikTok away, you're doing both of those things.
1: This is probably a good segue into this next major thing happening, right? The fucking vote. We're less than a hundred days away. I was gonna say almost three months-ish-ish. So I have to ask, what do, because I know where the head is at of of my contemporaries because we're just like, "Mm -mm 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 -mm." there's lots of thoughts I have, right? Like about Biden. My favorite account I'm following right now is called Settle for Biden.
2: And it's (laughs) a bunch
1: of people your, your, your age who have started it. And some of them are actually even like 17 waiting for the next election. So it's like literally like probably high school seniors through like, freshmen and sophomores in college. And they started this settle for Biden thing. That's fucking hilarious, but they're like, yo, we know I get it. Like, but like, come on, we got to just, we just fuck it up. We got to, we got to just do it. What do you, what are your thoughts about generationally? I'm concerned that not just young people, but a lot of people aren't going to vote or not vote for a third party out of principle it concerns me but do you feel that because of millennials and gen zers being mouthy in particular gen zers that there's a little more hope that the that, that that both of your generations are going to vote it's a loaded question i know
3: you know i look at the younger generation and 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 think about my sister erica who just turned 19 And, you know, she sent me this uh, TikTok of the, you know, the one that went around of Trump doing the cell block tango thing. And she texted me and said, look, I understand the reference now. And I said, oh, that's cool. Uh, And she said, well, I understand the Chicago part, but I don't really understand the Trump part. And I, I responded and I said, look, now is the time for you to understand, are you doing the research? Are you registered to vote? And she responded so quickly and said, yes, brother, I'm already registered, got you covered. And honestly, that was one of the proudest moments I could have as a big brother because I didn't have to push her into that. And 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 seeing that just gave me so much hope. And then I think about, you know, Gen Zers have had to go through way worse experiences growing up in schools than millennials with gun violence. The worst thing we had in California was earthquakes and earthquake drills. And then the worst thing growing up was 9-11. And it was awful, obviously. But, and it was terrifying. But every single day, Gen Z has to go to school and worry about whether they're going to get shot and killed. They're, they're triggered automatically and have absolutely zero government support. Could you imagine going to school every day knowing the adults just don't care? And, and now, you know, Gen Zers have to be political because it's their futures and it's their children's futures. So, they're concerned and fighting for climate change and gun control. TikTok is, t- has turned into the new Rock the Vote.
1: Yeah, that's a great. Oh, yeah. That's great. And Rock the Vote, God, that gives me so much hope, Jenny. Rock the Vote was so effective when I was young because it made voting cool. I was always going to vote. That wasn't the question, but I definitely was like, fuck yeah. I want to be cool, too. Everyone wants to be cool. What, what do you think, Cheech? And now we're going to cut over, ladies and gentlemen, to Generation Z-er. Here we are. Cheech. <laughs> Stepping up to bat. Speaking for everyone. The best. Speaking generation.
0: for the entirety of Generation Z. No, the entirety
1: um, of Generation Z.
0: Yeah. I, I would say that those are... That is a very solid comparison. That's a that's a strong simile that TikTok is is like in in many ways. Rock the vote. I think Generation Z has had to grow up with a lot more. We've we've left them with a lot of problems, especially young Gen Zers. We've left them with a lot of problems that have to be cleaned up and that will not be cleaned up in the lifetimes before us. Climate change, uh gun control, uh like I mean, it's it, the iceberg is endless, really, with the amount of things that they have to care about, mm-hmm. not just to be cool, but just to exist in mm-hmm. life to to get to a place where they don't have to be actively worried about it within their lifetimes. And so, out of necessity, I think, became cool to be political, not necessarily because that they, they uh, it, it became a trend for Gen Z, but be, because it became a way of life they have to care about all of these things i mean talk about survival like that's what they have to care about and so as a method of coping almost it seems like let's implement humor and let's make it really really cool um, to to be political i mean talking about not voting or or voting for a third party out of principle I think at that point, I would have to ask what your principle, what principle you're defending. Mm-hmm. Like, are, are you defending your right to a free and fair election? Sh- sure. I, I guess I can see that. But are your principles uh, also putting a xenophobe, homophobe, racist, misogynist animal in office? Is that aligned with your principles as well? Uh, is a confusing thought process to me if you're going to vote out of principle, great, but then get your prioritize your principles correctly. and look, I get it. Biden wasn't my first choice either like i, I, I don't I know very few people that were like in with Biden from the beginning. <laughs> was that the thing? Oh my, with did you not get this ride riding in with, with Biden, Biden email? No. Well, okay. There was this I'm email that surprised. went out from from the Biden campaign that was literally titled. The subject line was "Write in with Biden."
1: Can you and imagine that, the phrase, that meeting? That meeting.
0: I I have no idea. It used the phrase "Write in with Biden" like twelve times in in the body of the email. Wow. And I thought it was so hilarious. Like it was very clear that they were not in on the joke when they sent the email out. Man. But I thought it was so funny and like almost endeared me to him, which I think is maybe the point. Yeah. But like he wasn't, he wasn't my, my first choice either. But like if you're asking me to choose between him and like a true monster. Yes. Then I feel like that's a, that's a no brainer. Yes. Right. Like it just feels, it feels to me like we, Third parties and um, not voting have split decisions mm-hmm. so many times. I yes. mean, we saw, it, we saw it in 2016. Like, it, it is what happened in 2016. Your vote matters. It matters. And the amount of people that think, oh, mine won't because yeah. of X, Y, Z. I, I don't think people realize that there are, there are so many people in the United States right? Mm-hmm. And so if you say, I like banana bread, there are literally millions of people that like banana bread. Yes. If you say, I don't have to vote because of this, there are literally millions of people that think the same way as you. Yes, So, it, so this kind of systemic change always has to begin with one person. It always has to mm-hmm. begin with you because the, there's... You're, you're not special, like voting out of principle, voting for a third party, not voting. It doesn't, it, it doesn't some, you don't somehow get an exemption from the millions of other people who are also thinking like you.
3: What I think is terrifying is, well, look, I agree the two party system for the election is trash, 100% agree. But people voting third party because of that, where were you the last four years trying to advocate and dismantle that? Like, where were you then? We're messing with this election. Not only the presidency, but RBG's replacement. And so many others.
1: If you are not white and a woman, Hmm. what the actual fuck? I don't understand. I do not understand. There's a psychological thing happening there that is so dark that I can't begin to unpack that for you. And two, if you are a fucking ally... And you're saying that I'm an anti-racist. You cannot all of a sudden say, "Oh, well, I really wanted Bernie to win." Bitch, we all wanted Uncle Bernie to win on a certain level. Like, who wouldn't have loved to have like an angry white man with a really long track record of public service and like not taking any prisoners, like have our back. Like, it would have been great to have a woman for Christ's sake. Like, who would yeah. have loved to have Camilla be our fucking president? I would have been like, "Oh, at last." But That's just not what's happening. And so there's a little bit of that also, too, that I don't think people realize. The privilege of thinking that that is an option is fucking gross right now. Like, it's a deep level of privilege. I'm not even saying white privilege. I'm just saying of utter privilege that you think, you know what? Fuck it.
3: Yeah, well, when it comes to Bernie, it's anti-Semitism. And and with Kamala and uh, Amy and Warren... They were all female, so it's misogyny. There's so much that comes with that,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and people always say that voters don't vote with their brain; they vote with their gut. Like there's that big, that big thing, like oh, well, you know, when when Bush is getting elected, the whole like oh, I, can, I feel like I could have a beer with him. I feel like I could go bowling with him. Yes. That that idea, yeah. Currently, it feels a little bit like if you're if you're not voting for Biden, you're voting with your gut, and that feels like. a a privilege to me yes to be able to take the intellect out of it entirely to be able to go i don't have to think at all about this because my gut will tell me that this is the the right or the wrong decision instead of going if i were to if i were to just take 30 minutes and think about this i would really see that this is not the direction that i want for my country for the next four years, and if, and four years is a long time. Like literally, just sitting here thinking about it, you go, four years is a very long time. It's over a thousand days. Um, there, so much, so much hatred has been spewed. We are like, our country is ending. All of this happened currently within this last four-year span. Do I want to? Do I want it to get exponentially worse? And that's like, what, 30 seconds of thinking right there, and I'm already convinced to vote for Biden. So of, I, I, of, yes. I don't think you can take the, your brain out of it. You can't just vote with your gut without actually thinking about what it's going to do to us.
1: One million percent. The chaos that has been created in this last, like you said, thousand-ish days is astounding. I mean, th- there's nothing to say it is unfucking fathomable we are living in the fucking upside down like we will look back on this and and literally say we survived that the way that people survive yeah. other atrocious times in history what everyone on this panel right now is saying it is a panel this month is like fucking <laughs> just for god's sake i'm i'm going to speak to the people who are 40 and up i get it I fucking understand. There's some really, really conflicting shit with this motherfucker. I totally get it. But we need this fucking person to jump in there, get this other person out, start to tame the fucking GOP, let the dem run house, have someone at the top who's not going to fucking say no to everything. Listen, all politicians are barracudas. Hard stop. Full stop. Right, you have to be a monster on a certain level to make it in DC. But the the there's just no other option right now, and I feel like, from my point of view, everyone needs to vote. And I'm glad to hear from Teach and Danny. It feels like what you're saying to to young people is the exact same thing, which is yeah. heartening. You know, and I feel like anyone in the arts, hello, if there's people listening to this in the arts, you know what to do. I mean, we know what to do.
0: Look, vote. I, I get it vote for Biden, have him do four years. If in four years you're like, like you still detest him or whatever, you still feel like you've settled, like pick a different candidate. We can, we can pick a different candidate in four years. That's like the way the election works. And, And if like the, the country rallies around them and they, they have, they're a good, decent person with good, decent ideas, then, then great. But like right now in this moment in 2020, like, you, you need to get your priorities straight.
1: <laughs> there is a racist fascist in office. It is. Yeah. And actually, you know what's to do? I don't want to unpack this much further. I don't even know if I would call call this person a fascist because that requires a certain level of intellect. But we definitely have a racist person in office yeah. that is openly racist and is yeah. enforcing like, racism. It if is. You
0: are anyone but. A, a straight white male that is rich with family money
2: mm-hmm. like if Wealth. you are any
0: Wealth. if you are anyone outside of that demographic you have no excuse yeah. it, it is you have no leg to stand on here you are betraying an entire community if you don't it's not it's not just you it's not your voice you are literally betraying an entire community if you do not use your your constitutional right to vote this person
3: out of office and if i can ask but you know this is the I want to have to say this is the brownest panel I've ever been associated with. And I'm just so happy about that. Like, it's so nice to talk to you guys about this and to like kind of unleash all of this. But as my Brown brothers here, I just feel like I need to ask, well, as look, I, I spoke to a lot of my pro-Trump friends and family where I grew up. And the only way that I've gotten through to them is by talking about my experience and putting a face to what that experience is. So it's not just a computer screen. And, and you know, with that association, I'm so often found as the white acting brown friend. So I'm not really a threat to them where they don't see color and all of that racist bullshit. But, you know, I, I did a show and... My friend's mom didn't even know that I identified as Latinx until I did that show. She left the show and asked my friend who was in the show, who I've had a long relationship with, she said, I did not know. I did not know that that's how he identified. I thought he was white. So I, I just think that that's really interesting, you know, the level of threat. But I, 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 I want to ask you guys that, you know, after the 2016 election, did you not feel threatened or scared? Did you feel that that shift that came after the day after the day of, the night of? Did people start coming out and and saying weird things to you? Did you did you feel that kind of energy? Because I know for me the night of the election I started to receive death threats and told not to leave my house or I'll be raped and killed. I wanted to know what your experience was and if that was different than than what I experienced or or did you have anything similar happen to you?
1: I, yeah uh, well, no, please, go go for it.
0: no, I would say I, I I woke up the next day to a series of instructions from my parents. Mm-hmm. Um, I remembered that text very clearly. They told me to take out my piercings. They told me to shave my face. Um, th- they told me to get my hair cut as soon as possible to wear, you know, n- nothing that really like brought attention to me to to dress soberly to wear my glasses um so that I would I would present as uh an an educated upstanding member of society and i i i it, it's it was very very similar to the um set of instructions that my brother and i got post 9/11 mm. um that we, that we abided by for, for years, for like six or seven years after nine eleven was, was, you know, we, we weren't allowed to buy clothes that brought too much attention to us. We, you know, the, the idea of wearing piercings was out of, out of the question. Um, uh, it, and, you know, Syracuse where I went to school is kind of, is kind of vanilla city, really. I mean, and there is a strong liberal population within Syracuse University, and I, I think what I found out the next day, because there were lovins, there were sit-ins, there were vigils, there were protests all over campus, and there were also anti-lovins, anti-sit-ins, anti-vigils, anti-protests against those uh, against those organizing. Um, and I, I th- think it was the first time that i i felt a real sense of danger post the election and it was like what it must have been like six hours after after the election happened after after the the vote was called
1: i was actually working <laughs> an election party so i watched the titanic sink mm-hmm. with like a hundred Democrats oh no. in a room. And it was the, I've never, well, well, actually, yeah. So when Obama was elected the first time, second time too, but the first time in particular, I was just getting off a gig and I hopped in the back of a cab and I heard, we knew he won, right? And I was listening to him speaking and everyone, all the cabs were had their windows rolled down and were playing it. So it was just like very, cinematic moment of hearing him echo and distribute from the sounds of speakers and taxis of all these non-white people, right? Basically playing it. And I was bathed in tears. So that was a visceral reaction. I had a similar visceral reaction where everyone I was working with, we literally like, we didn't even try to act like something was happening. Everyone was just floored. I literally had to sit down. Like they literally told us it's okay, guys. Like just Take a minute and breathe. Everyone's losing their fucking minds. And because, you know, you got to figure at that point, I was already in my late 30s. I've been living here over 15 years. I just braced myself for the worst. It wasn't necessarily that I got any kind of anything threatening happening to me, but I just knew that nothing would ever be the same. And I immediately started thinking to, this moment now of we have to fix this. And in a lot of ways, to be honest with you, I kind of went numb, but I just remember it was like the worst news ever. Honestly, I lived through nine I was here. It felt like nine 11 in the sense that a disaster had happened. So that was my experience with it. And kind of immediately, actually though, to your point, Danny, huddling up with all my queer buddies being like, so, um, yeah, I don't think it's safe anymore. Like, you know, like feeling like who's out of the woodwork. And that was actually when you started seeing people who are racist in New York, which is very hard to be racist in Manhattan. It is openly racist. It's hard. Like there's plenty of bigoted people here. Fine. But you can't like really say it out loud. And there was someone I remember they put up a some kind of stupid ass something in their window and people literally got the realtor uh, and the, the land, the land. What is it? What are they called? I'm losing my thoughts. Landlord? The landlord? The landlord kicked out the resident. They're like, mm-hmm. nope, nope, you're causing a fucking. There are literally people like ganging up. Like, this is like, you can't do this. Yeah, and I okay. I did feel good to be in the state that felt like it had its fucking head on. That's what made mm-hmm. me go out of New York. Um, and I actually remember this a guest, we had these red and blue crayons on the tables to like mark what countries and stuff like countries good morning class hi i'm aaron to mark what states were like you know and at one point this young lady was just scribbling like in total despair and then she like left a big tip and just wrote in all red we're all he's um he's going to kill us and i thought about that when covid went down yeah that is the most uplifting way to go out of a segment ladies and gentlemen All that being said, what we what these three brown non-straight boys are trying to say to use two's kids listening is fucking vote, and then we will deal with dismantling the two-party system. But we've got to steer this goddamn boat in another direction. So this is a great time to take a to take a break. And actually, if you've never listened before, we take a meditation break on this show. Uh, One day, there'll be a sponsorship there, but we're going to take a meditation break. So if you haven't experienced that, get cozy, mellow out. Let's breathe for a second. We'll be right back. Hello, everyone. This is Aaron Salazar, your host and producer of this podcast. I hope that you're enjoying it so far. So there's a lot happening in the world right now. and Amongst this chaos, it's really important that we take moments to make sure that we feel centered. So for the first few episodes of this new experience, I'd like us all to take a moment to breathe
2: and recalibrate. How does that sound? Good. All right. So. This is our meditation break. Get comfortable wherever you're at. Close your eyes. Take a deep breath in. And let it out. Another breath in. And let it out. All right. Now just breathe normally. Just remember, you are perfect and you are loved. All right. Let's get back to the show.
1: All right, everyone. And we're back. Do you feel a little better? I hope you do. Okay. So I'm fascinated about your journey, the both of you, with casting and maybe a way to start this is how you both actually met and ended up being in the same circles all the time.
2: Yeah.
3: So I started going to a bunch of auditions. I got a manager and they're wonderful. And they submitted me for a bunch of huge projects. And I was so nervous and excited to go to these auditions. And I saw Cheech and I was so nervous to talk to him. But then I realized we were going in for all of the same auditions. I mean, there was one week where we saw each other,
0: I think, three times.
3: Yeah. Or 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 there were other weeks where I had just missed you. Like, I'd see your name on the list at Telsey and think, well, there you go. But it's beautiful. And I'm just so glad that we connected. And we've been on a show together now and see each other all the time and created this brown brotherhood of sorts. And I think it's really fascinating seeing, and we've talked about this before, Cheech, but uh, it's interesting seeing our demographic as far as film and TV and theater.
0: It's funny. I, I I say this like we're two very different kinds of brown and two very different kinds of gay. And at the same time, um, <laughs> we always have like if it's a queer character, if it's a if it's a peripheral character that they think, oh, we should cast a brown person for this. Um, because it's not going to be, it's not going to be the lead, but like, if it's Mm. a periphery character that they go, Oh, we should cast a Brown person for this. Like the two of us will always either show up on the same day or just miss each other. Or one of us will audition one day and the next, the other one of us will audition the next day. And it it does feel a little bit like, uh, we, we've made a name for ourselves as being like Brown queer actors and (laughs) cast us in your Brown queer roles.
3: (laughs) Who's queer? Not me.
1: No, no, why not? But now, breaking down the perception of race, right? In casting, oof, let's break down just one small fraction of that. That you've both been called in to just cover general, dare we say, brownness mm-hmm. is what yeah. I'm fascinated by. That, like, you'll literally be called in for the same race, perceived race. And that I'm, fascinated by
3: well there's this sense of brown ambiguity and because i'm you know as far as for me because i'm a little more ethnically ambiguous looking to a degree i can be a light-skinned brown boy in the white crew or just the direct brown boy on the show but what's really interesting to me that i found in the last year or so when talking that that all of these things are Really talking about race. And yet, there are a lot of roles specified, very specific for Cheech that I've been sent in for. And I've had to straight up say, no, I don't identify. I cannot go in with that. We just can't do that. I've had to say straight up, no. But because I'm this mysterious thing to casting, they're just like, well, you fit in the role, you're available. And it's this weird sense of, browner face where you just fit in that mold
0: yeah i and i i have not um been afforded that same that same luxury i think i i i I, the only time that it has really come into play is when in summer stock i feel like in summer stock people are like grasping for straws yes as you know they'll they'll do like they'll do west side story but like they know, like they already know that they're not going to get fifteen Latinx people to be in this production of West Side Story. So any kind of uh, brat, like I I I always thought of it as like color washing. It's like you have to be as dark or darker than what we have in mind, and then it's okay, everything flies. So if you're like if you're Indian, if you're black, it's fine. You can play Latinx. Um, but I've I've only found that in like smaller smaller regional jobs i i found that in new york i was indian and that was my type um i i, I realized that a lot of my friends had some say as to like what they could play you know they, their types were like oh uh like bitchy gen z or their types were you know uh over eager like they they had things in mind and brands of comedy that they could they could sell themselves as and i found that the only thing that i could sell myself as was indian and then after i got to a certain point
3: indian and gay yeah um do you feel like playing kevin g hinders you now like as far as like auditions and like what your type is
1: well and and to that's
2: more specific,
1: yeah, and to piggyback off that with Danny's thought, I had the same same kind of pondering that playing you know Kevin's such a um machismo little straight boy yeah has that has that changed the perception of the things that people call you in for now
0: um, I think now the the main difference is that people know I'm funny Copy that. I think before yeah. it was. Uh, I I mean, my first year of auditioning was just constant Uber driver sons and Mm -hmm. um, like sons of cashiers and like deep, deep immigrant stories, which are like wonderful, is is necessary, is cool um, and is 100 percent not my wheelhouse. Like I am not you're not going to see me on SVU, you know, Uh, I I like to think of myself as kind of a comedian first in both my acting and my, my writing. And I think the big shift that happened is people saw me in Mean Girls and started to go, oh, he's funny. Even Mm -hmm. like beyond the fact that he's Indian and beyond the fact that he's queer, like he's, he's, he's just funny. And I started to go in for more roles where I could go, um, and just be a funny human. Um, which was, you know, kind of a, a cool shock for me because then I could go into those auditions and be funny, and then s- those casting directors would start to understand my brand of comedy, yeah, rather than my skin tone. I Absolutely. love that. I'm
3: so glad that that's a thing.
0: Yeah, you know, shout out, shout out to Tina and Casey for <laughs> putting me on stage, guys. That's that's the, You guys are real ones for that. <laughs>
1: Well and then that that is amazing. And I also wonder too if it if I I hear so many horror stories about this so I'm curious. The whole thing where someone comes in and says you know the codes. Could you be a little more urban?
0: I get a little bit more um can you be a little bit more Kevin G in this? Like I find that happening now because I think more and more the idea of um the like the, the the gangsta Indian person has like become a thing now or like the OG in like Indian has become a thing. I, I with uh I, I think the most obvious example of it would be a season sorry in Parks and Recreation. Yep. But you see more and more periphery characters pop up like that. I mean I, I went out for a project recently where it felt it felt like that that was exactly what I was going out for I was going out for like a Tom Haverford like lookalike um and it's kind of become its own its own niche and its own uh stock character mm. which I feel conflicted about because on the one hand I'm like glad that we're no longer asexual punchlines mm. and on the other hand I'm like we still exist outside of this trope
1: yeah asexual punchlines Oh yeah. Do you care to unpack that? I'm curious about that, and also, oh, totally. and, and and to to prep you for that, Danny, I often find that that's what they do now. Well, no, not that's what they do. It's what's always happened when someone cast you as gay. You have to be this like non-threatening, non-sexualized gay.
0: Yeah. I think for a very long time, Indians just like didn't exist on TV. Like like Asian Asians didn't exist on TV for a very, very long time. And then when we did start to exist, we became this kind of niche periphery character that all we did was act as comedic relief. And most of the jokes surrounding that character had to do with how bad they were at creating relationships. To me like the most obvious example for me is is the Big Bang Theory. Like for the first what four seasons of the Big Bang Theory, the character of Raj is quite literally silenced around women. And that's his whole his whole joke is the fact that he can't talk to women. And and for a very long time, I think largely in part to like how hilarious Kunal Nayyar is in, is in that role that became the norm, is let's, we, we need comedic relief, we need more diversity, I put diversity in quotation marks here, mm-hmm, we need mm-hmm. comedic relief, we need diversity, this feels like a twofer, because we don't have to invest any time in creating, creating or developing characters around this periphery character and at the same time we get punchlines out of them and we get uh we get a pat on our back for casting an asian-american in this and great there we go um like you you see it in in george takei you see it in big bang theory you see mm-hmm. it um it, like even in in some of these shows where like even in in a uh like indian-led show you'll see it so much of uh, the Mindy project is about the fact that the character of Mindy can't, can't uh, get a man. I think Mindy Kaling does a really good job at subverting that trope by making her overconfident and over sexual. Yeah. um, Which I think is, is was a really lovely, refreshing take to see, but it's a nice it's nice now that I think people have like suddenly discovered that Asian Americans can have sexual desire and act on it and it will enrich it'll enrich a television show or enrich enrich a narrative.
1: Absolutely. What about you, Danny? What are your thoughts on that when in terms of when you get brought in as hi, I'm the I'm the brown, queer kid? I always feel like it's just such a mask that they want people to wear for those roles, but that's just my perception.
3: Yeah, it's actually kinda strange because there are kind of I I'm afforded more options as far as my type and what I can go in for. Um as far as my queerness, I'll never be the leading man, at least not now in our industry as we know it. That's just not a thing. But what I find interesting is as far as my queerness goes, it's either not a factor or it's the only factor in the room. Uh I'm never told to tone down my gay if anything i get told more often than none to turn it up um i'm always the like drag queen characters in every musical which is strange and i'm not actually even really considered the non-threatening gay when it comes to like type-wise. i'm always like the threatening gay (laughs) um while i can be really funny and the heart of a show um i'm usually cast as the villain um Mrs. Fletcher for example, I was the sassy gay friend who said the rude thing back and forth, like it, it just was my thing um that I was directed to do. Um and then there's other instances where I'm the vaguely brown person in the crew and I can be anything from, you know, the stoner random guy in in the group or I'm the gay assistant or whatever. And it's weird because sometimes I'll be in auditions and they'll they'll ask me, can you improv in Spanish? Um, can you just throw out a little Spanish in there um, or like give us some Spanglish? And then I think to myself and want to ask them, am I the only one you're asking to speak in their native language? Because my Spanish is actually pretty bad. Um, is this me? Is, is it only me that you're asking this from?
1: Mm. And to be honest in terms of theater, I don't know i'm gonna I'm gonna say this. I think we're gonna see what happens, but i'm I'm suspect to be honest with you, yeah, in oh, terms yeah. of it's great that there have been committees that have been created now to address things, and so there's a little bit of a eye on things. But you know, I get some inside scoop, too, from some buddies who are deep, deep in, and they're mortified by how much some of the people in charge are like, <clears throat> it's a phase
0: because it it feels like a phase. like it, it's it's this um, oh, how do I say this as a yeah, no, i'm going I'm just going to go ahead and say it. it It does feel like a phase." Because I'm being being part of the Broadway community currently, uh, we got called in to have a uh, a how how have we been failing our POC employees meeting? Right.
1: This was during uh, during lockdown.
0: This was during lockdown. It was like a Zoom meeting, um, and it was at the height of the BLM Instagram takeover. It it started to become like people started to do that weird thing where they equate POC with black, like, and And use them as interchangeable terms. Yep. And during the meeting, it was, there, there was this moment where we had to go, this meeting is about how you're failing your, your black employees, not about how you're failing your POC employees.
2: Exactly.
0: How you're failing your POC employees is different and specific and real and it's it's not enough to to put a commitment towards diversity forward or to say that like we're really doing doing the work internally it's it's not really enough to 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 just say things and it feels like right now we're okay with the platitudes like because people are at least acknowledging the fact that racism exists within the world of theater.
1: And just statistically, the one thing that I've been that's I've all I've always known, okay, this is something I always tell I've been saying for years, and especially in the last five years that I started my own company. I am not famous, and I am one of the only Mexican directors working in New York City. Mm-hmm. That shit is astounding. And in my immersive community, I'm one of the only non white people who's actually created a commercial product in all of America. And then when we saw those stats about CSA, that it was like less than three, it was less than five people. And then when we found out in all of LORT, that basically it was like shocking that no one, right? And in any other industry, if there's less than 20 people representing for all non-white people, that's a fucking emergency. But for some reason, we're only now becoming cognizant of it. And I'm just curious to see what that shift is going to be. I don't know. I mean, the truth of the matter is theater takes a long fucking time. It's like the government, you know what I mean? Everything's so like mired in process. That it'll it'll be interesting to see what happens next. But what I what I do think is um, is is fantastic though is that people like the two of you that you're younger and you're you're and then people like me where we're like right before like where I'm still in my early forties. I do think that the lack of fear of having these conversations at all is the beginning.
2: Yeah, totally.
1: Because it's like. I- yeah, there, I, I don't know about you guys, but a big thing Jason VC talked about uh, during his tenure on the show was about decolonizing your mind. And it's something I've had to think a lot about as a brown person who I realized I've allowed myself to assimilate out of fear of white audiences not accepting my work and wondering what that fear was. And I'm still unpacking that. That's just going to take a long time. But that's Ooh, yeah. that's what's come to mind for me.
0: Yeah, part I our, think it's part of our No, DNA go for it. Now.
3: Go for it. I was just going to say it's part of our DNA. We grown up with it we've learned to put ourselves back into the closet as you know brown people and being able to especially in manhattan being able to like fit in in any kind Mm -hmm. of like mold so it's like yeah your culture and your heritage kind of goes away because you're like how can i just like fit into the type that you need me to be
1: i'm sure it's the same for you guys like when i first got here i just wanted the cool kids to like me and i didn't even realize all the cool kids were white and so, without me realizing it, it just was there. Not all of them, but most.
0: I think also, if if you're a POC artist, and I would say specifically a non Black POC artist, yes, 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 you have um, you've gotten used to waiting for your turn. Mm. Um, I think the the episode of Master of None where Aziz Ansari talks about uh, like the there can be two rule like black people just got to there can be two of them on television like in the same television show and like gay people are are there now and like i i've always felt very uh aware of the idea that like okay black people are now gonna have their moment and then after that the latinx community will follow them and then after that will be the non-south asian asian american community and then after that will be my time like I have always felt very, very aware of the the slow growing of these different uh groups, and until we get to the point where there are enough of us, we're always gonna be um we're always gonna exist in the like this strange other category lumped in with all of the other communities that are there with us
1: well and also not people betting on what feels safe to them both aesthetically and also that's part of i'm just going to say it the club of people who all hang out in the same circle all hang out socially you know it's a big kiki you know it's entertainment it's an industry and i mean we're all fucking here today because we've like kiki at a certain point now but it's different like to harness change what's going to mm-hmm. have to happen is the white people who have the money are going to have to take the risk on us that they risk on a shitty show with a bunch of white kids. And it's not really about, Oh, who's going to pay for the show. The show is a product of 10 years of work. Who's going to pay for fucking development? Well, who's going to look at who's going to look at these people. Who's going to look at a motherfucker. Who's like, listen, look at, I, I'm going to just say this as an example. I am not white, obviously, even though my last show, all the fucking kids were white in it, but I had a show, people paid 75 bucks to come to it and I'm not famous. And the people were not famous. If I was white, 17 producers would have been like, I want to work on your next show. You did a show in Manhattan and people paid 75 fucking dollars with a $25 beverage minimum to experience your show and you sold out. And you were in the New York Times and you were in the Daily News and you were in the Wall Street Journal and in the New York Post. But I'm not white. So no one knocked. Yeah. And I, I I fully believe that. And if I get even deeper, all the editors that came to my aid during that, because my publicist was a badass and he's a, he's a genuinely nice person, were all writers and editors of color. I didn't even dot together that they were like, look at this fucking brown queen making this shit happen in Midtown. You right. know what? We're going to give you a feature. And I think it was unspoken. But I realized basically a group of POCs were like, we're gonna, we're gonna help you, kid. Like we're gonna hook up as much as we can and we'll lump it into a seasonal thing. But here's something. And any but anyone else in this business, if they were part of the little club of non-ethnic people, would have been exalted for that kind of accomplishment. Yeah. I've never I don't know if it's I don't know if it's good to express that, but that's that's actually kind of how I feel.
3: And, you know, as a producer in this city, I've done some really incredible work and worked with some of the biggest people on Broadway. And, you know, I, I took the, the time in this, you know, quarantine to reach out to those big white producers and said, hey, you should mentor me. Now is the time for you to mentor a little brown boy and, you know, and, and really change the future of what our industry looks like. And I have to say, not a single one of them responded back. Not one people I have complete relationships with. I have their phone numbers, not one responded. And you know, what I learned through that is, and and creating my own production company is that we don't have to wait for that handout. We can make our own work, we can do our own thing. I mean, there's a stream of BIPOC community in this industry. And if they, in turn, want to do something, if those big white producers want to do something for us, they have to start with more than just putting actors on stage. They need to put money into casting. I have never once seen a BIPOC person behind the table. Not one time. They need to mentor, put money into mentoring future producers. There are just so many different parts of our industry, in- industry as far as um, lighting designers, costume designers, stage managers, company managers, there's just so many parts of our industry that can't just get ignored and just throwing actors on a stage. We just can't do that anymore. And, and at the end of the day, Broadway is not the end-all be-all. I know we think that it is. It's one of the biggest for sure, but it's not the only there are so many other mediums, especially in New York City. There's off-Broadway, there's off-off-Broadway, there's cabarets, there's concerts, there's so many, there's film and television, there's so many different industries when it comes to the arts in New York City. And it's time that we really advocate and amplify underrepresented voices in other mediums and other ways. But ultimately, it starts with us. We can't just point our fingers at our white white counterparts and just expect to have some change because we have to teach them. And we kind of have to say, we're going to lead you through this and you're going to follow us or we're going to leave you behind because there's just too much for us to do. And I think what's going to be really interesting coming out of this quarantine and coming from this hellhole that we're in is seeing how much change there will be when we get back and how things are going to be different and how many companies will be formed and how many people will be fighting for um, justice as far and inequality as far as our industry goes.
1: Amen, Danny Maron. Teach, what are your thoughts on that?
3: Yeah, I would say that um, the biggest
0: differentiation between us doing it ourselves and waiting for someone else to do it is that I'm, I'm trying to remember who I think my my good friend Vishal Reddy told me this uh he's the creator of Insomnia the web series um which is an incredible brown queer uh production but uh he said that if you're going to uh do anything then at the very 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 first table read that you do uh, it has to include um, it has to include uh, diversity. Like, it has to be a diverse room right Right from the very beginning. Yep. Because then you set a tone from that point forward that says, this is a room that celebrates diversity. And it's not a thing that people have to think about. No, um, and
1: it, I think, it's not tokenism.
0: Right. And I think we're, we have been trained to uh, think that way from jump in terms of how do we make our how do we make ourselves succeed right yes. and so then when we extend that to other people how do we help our community succeed and do that right from the very very beginning then it becomes then it becomes second nature it's why you see so many really really diverse poc led companies because we we know that from the beginning it's important to us it's on our mind
1: Absolutely. It's, it's going to just, it is exactly that. It's completely the spirit of we're going to do this now. And I like, by the way, I just want to make note of this, that you said this is about our Black cast members. Because there, there's, you know, and we should unpack this in another episode. But the BIPOC, I always say BIPOC because by bi, I always think sexuality. So for my own mind, mm-hmm. I'd say bi. There seems to be a sense of of pushback on that because I do think in a lot of ways, like when we're talking about Black Lives Matter, that is not a BIPOC. That is a Black emergency that has been going on for hundreds of years, and you can't lump that all together. And so I'm glad that the distinction is being made there, because all the different communities of non-white people have very specific issues that we're dealing with. And I think as we move forward in the theater, we're going to have to really be specific and not be afraid to say the words. And also, our ethnicities not being a pejorative, even to ourselves, so that in a way it we're no longer like the whispers, like back in the day yeah. like when our grandparents were like, "Uncle Tom has cancer." Well, you know that he's there. He's like Mexican, but like he's really light skinned so like. But you know, we've <laughs> been we've been whispered about a lot. I think, yeah. And I think that now we're shouting. I'm excited, and I I hope that we move forward with the spirit of what everyone on this fucking show is saying right now.
2: Absolutely.
0: I think we, I think we will. I think we just have to uh, take a harder look at ourselves, ourselves on what we accept. Yes. Um, on what we accept to be like good enough or uh, enough change. It's going to make us feel like we're being annoying sometimes it's going to make us feel like we're being annoying about it sometimes, but I, going back to the whole idea of like decolonizing your mind, um, it's not actually annoying to say, Hey, this is unfair or Hey, we're not taking care of a community an entire community of people here. Um, that's not an unfair thing to say. And it shouldn't, we, we shouldn't have to, you know, subscribe to the stigma of it all. The idea that talking about, race is like an icky thing it's no. it's not you can you can you can be glib you can be breezy like like breezy conversations about race exist i know because i have them with my brown friends all the
1: time all the time <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, and on that note, everyone, guys, I think that's our first episode together. Yeah, wow. Brown Boys. Yo, so everyone, please, 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 uh, uh, do us a favor and uh, make sure that you're checking us out for all the month of August. We got Cheech and Danny here all month. We got a lot of shit to unpack. So please follow us. I've got these brilliant artists kicking it out, talking about some real shit for this entire month. Please, we would love for you to subscribe, uh, rate, and review this. And give us some love on the Instagram. Danny, Cheech, I'm so excited to keep this going with both of you. And uh, thank you so much for your time and your talent. Be healthy, be actionable, and most importantly, be authentic. Much love. For Fuck's Sake Podcast is brought to you by Alvarez Kiko Salazar Productions, hosted and produced by Aaron Salazar. Original music by Manuel Paleo and Giancarlo Bonfanti. Please like, rate, and subscribe. Follow us on Instagram at 4FS underscore podcast and on Twitter and Facebook at 4FS podcast. Thanks so much. Much love.